good morning, friends. It's a typical long weekend Sunday, which means that there are less people in the pews, but more people online. So welcome everyone that's joining us on YouTube as well. If you're visiting this morning, I'm Ray David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning of opening God's Word. Um, I was away last week, and I wanted to tell you guys thank you so much for praying for me for my shingles. Um, thankfully, it has not gone into my eye, which means I still have eyesight in my right eye. Uh, the symptoms have mostly gone away. A little headache, a little lethargic, but, you know, Jesus is still on the throne, and what am I going to do? I'm not going to sit at home and cry. So let's open up God's Word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as you probably noticed when um, Emily and Harvest were reading to us, is a passage that's all about Christian generosity. And folks, there's so much that we can say about this topic. It's something that would cover an entire sermon series. Fortunately, next week in chapter 9, we're going to get to look at it again. But this week, I want specifically to look at one thing, okay? One truth about Christian generosity. Generosity gives. Now, that might seem obvious, but I think it's worth us just pausing this, moment, this morning and putting a uh, a period, an underline, bold, italics, whatever you do to emphasize something, generosity results in giving. Now, you can't miss that. We could all agree that the Christian life ought to be marked by a generous heart. Generosity that is so much more than just what we do with our money. Christian generosity encompasses what we do with our time with our energy, with our emotional bandwidth. Christians ought to be relationally generous as well. well. What does that mean? I think it's particularly poignant in today's world. Relational generosity for Christians means that we give others the benefit of the doubt, assume the best about them instead of the worst. Well, those are all Markers of generosity. I think another marker of relational generosity is that Christians ought to be quick to forgive those who wrong them. And all those things are true. Generosity is more than what we just do with our money. But Christian man or woman, generosity is never less than what you do with your money. Okay? What you do with money is important when it comes to the issue of generosity. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 reminds us of this fact. And so, as you heard Emily and Harvest read that passage to us this morning, you probably asked this question if you were paying attention. Am I a generous person? Or more pointedly, would other people in your life say that you are a generous person? Because we all suffer from some level of self-delusion and deceit. I find it interesting that um, generosity is one of those inherently Christian values and virtues that the, the world still recognizes as something good. It's a character trait or disposition that's prized even by your secular friends. Even your secular friends would agree that avarice and greed are bad. There are few people that are hated as much as the guys on Bay Street, right? Generosity is good. Avarice, greed, hoarding, selfishness, even by secular standards, that's a bad thing. 
But worldly generosity is actually something different than Christian generosity. The pinnacle of worldly generosity is to give enough money to have your name posted in perpetuity on the outside of a wing of a hospital. So that everyone will drive by and say, wow, isn't that guy a great guy? See, that's worldly generosity. And I'd suggest to you this morning that that's actually not generous at all. Because its end is to bring glory to yourself. And so it's actually not generous. It's actually just using other people, using your money so that you can enlist other people so that you can actually make yourself greater and more aggrandized. That's not generous at all. That's what the world calls generosity. See, Christian generosity serves a different purpose. And just before we jump into this passage, I want to make this clear. If we look at this gift that Paul is collecting, Paul um, was sent out from home base in Jerusalem. He was sent out as an apostle to the Gentiles. He went out with the gospel message all across the then-known world. He preached the gospel. People were converted to Christ and saved. Churches were started. And then Paul, immediately at all those churches, started the task of taking up a collection for the poor back home in Jerusalem. That's what this passage is reminding the Corinthians about. He's saying to them, you remember that collection that we started whenever I first came to Corinth? He's saying, when I come back, I want to see that you've continued in that, generously, giving to others and not just hoarding for yourself. So Paul is collecting from the Corinthian Gentile church for the Christians back in Jerusalem. And friends, that might seem counterintuitive to our modern missionary sense, right? The people to whom the gospel is being taken, taking up collections and gathering and sending it back to the people from whom the gospel came. It's kind of upside down, isn't it? those who are receiving the gospel, giving back to the source of the gospel. But in this picture, I want you to see that this is one of the purposes that Christian generosity serves. If secular generosity is largely about self-aggrandizement and inflating ego, one of the things that Christian generosity does is that it brings unity among brothers and sisters. So if you can imagine when the gospel is moving out across the then known world with Paul and the gospel has made this um, seismic leap, right, from from the Jews to the Gentiles, some of the Jews are feeling a little bit salty that the gospel has actually gone out to these pork eating Gentiles. And one of the things that Paul does to sort of bridge that gap relationally is he says, you guys need to give generously back to those who gave you the gospel in order to strengthen those relationships. Well, that's one of the purposes of Christian generosity. You might look at that and say, R.D., are you telling me that Christianity is somehow communist? The answer is hard, no, full, stop. The Christian message of unity in these ways of giving and generosity is not that everyone would have the same, but rather that all Christian brothers and sisters would share equally in the burden We're going to unpack that as we move forward. The first purpose of Christian generosity is to 
strengthen unity and build relationships. The second one, this may seem obvious. You know, if, if secular generosity is about glory going to the giver and to himself, Christian generosity is about the glory going to God. We're going to get to that one in a moment. Okay, let's jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. Trust you have it open in front of you. We're going to move through these verses. Look at verses 1 to 2. Paul writes to these Corinthians and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here we see that generosity gives out of poverty and affliction. This is what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. Now, now you have to understand, Corinth was located in a commerce and trade center for the Greco-Roman world, and so many of the people who were Corinthian Christians were actually quite well off, kind of like Christians who live in northeast Burlington. And the Christians back in Macedonia, well, they were dirt poor And they found themselves under affliction and hardship. But Paul says that their affliction and their poverty resulted in an outpouring of generosity. So this is the first thing I want you to take away. You might look at your life right now and say, I'm just starting out my career. I'm a single parent. I'm in between jobs. I don't have the resources to give to the work of the Lord generously. And Paul would say, no, no, you do. You do. In fact, some of the gifts that are most lovely before the Lord are when those who have the least give from what they have. I'm not going to name names, but I've seen little children in this church who perform their chores in their home, get their weekly allowance, and bring in their nickels and dimes. Generosity gives out of poverty. Look at verses 3 to 5. Paul's still talking about the Macedonians giving out of their poverty, and he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Well, if the first thing that we see in verses 1 to 2 is that generosity gives from poverty, the second thing that we see is Christian generosity is proportional. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that all Christians ought to be giving at the same level of sacrificial generosity, not necessarily the same amount. Do you understand what I mean? That's what Jesus had in mind in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 41 forward, where he told the story that many of you probably know, the story of the widow's mite, but I want to read it to you because it shows this point. Mark chapter 12. And... 
he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Paul's instructing the Corinthians in this same truth that Jesus shared in Mark 12. The Christian generosity is proportional, different amounts, but the same level of sacrifice. That's why when Christians give money to the work of the Lord, it's the great equalizer in the church. We've already seen just briefly how it tears down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. That was the purpose of this gift that Paul was collecting. But it also is a demonstration of genuineness of love and faith. You can't give sacrificially and generously unless you love the other person, unless you believe that God has a good plan for them and that he wants to use you to make it happen. I also want to suggest to you this morning that giving money engenders reciprocal generosity. When you give out of your poverty, when you give sacrificially, it will only make the recipient all the more generous with you. I'm going to have a hard time telling this story, so bear with me. A month or so ago, two months ago, uh, Monica and I were in Belize. And many of you know that Belize is a third world country. It's a developing country where people are impoverished. Well, we thought that we were going down there to sit poolside and sip Diet Coke and, you know, do crossword puzzles, but actually God had a different plan. Because while we were down there, we met a lot of locals. In fact, I'll tell you how we met them. Um, Monica went down ahead of me by a few days. She was sitting poolside one day. The guy who's the pool boy, he was a local guy. He came by and was cleaning the pool. Monica struck up a conversation that was like two hours long with this guy, at the end of which she said to him, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Right? Way to go, Monty. Never miss an opportunity. Well, this guy's name is Arnold. And so we developed this deep relationship with Arnold, this real friendship. But before I got down there, Monty texted me, and she says to me in the text, R.D., I have fallen in love with the pool boy. I thought, gosh, Monty, you could have found a better way to phrase that. But, but you know what I mean. She fell in love with this guy, this local guy, and, and just loved his heart. His name is Arnold. And so I then came down to Belize. We, we started hanging out with Arnold. He introduced us to a lot of other locals. They took us to a soccer game late one night. It was just fantastic, right? We had this incredible experience with these impoverished locals. And the day after the soccer match, Arnold was going to take us into the mountains, into Mayan villages to go swimming in the rivers. Well, that's a whole story I'll tell another time. But I said to Monty on the night of the soccer match with Arnold there, I said, Monty, I'm going to need to buy a hat. 
getting too much sun on the top of my head. Well, the next morning, we went to meet up with Arnold. And Arnold is a man who has never been to a restaurant. He makes $3 an hour. He lives just barely above the poverty line, you know. And when we went to meet Arnold, he was standing there, and he had purchased a hat for me out of his poverty. I put my hat on, and choking back tears, I said to him, Arnold, look at the nice hat that my friend bought me. And he said, that's because my friend doesn't have any hair. <laughs> but you know, Arnold's gift to us out of that, out of his lack, has engendered a generosity in our heart where, you know, there have been countless times over the last few weeks where we have sent money down to Arnold to help him and his son who's just in hospital. And, but, but the point of this story is generosity gives out of poverty. Generosity gives proportionally. For Arnold to give me a hat was so much more than me giving him tens of thousands of dollars, if you know what I mean. And it also engendered a reciprocal generosity in my heart. See, generosity is one of those things. Giving never divides. It always multiplies. It just builds. Because he gave to me out of something that cost him something. In my daily Bible readings, I just concluded 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago. And 2 Samuel concludes with this account of King David. King David is at a point in his life where he's at the threshing floor and he wants to make an offering and a sacrifice to God. And so um, one of the local men says to him, here, you can have my oxen. Just take them and offer them to God. And in 2 Samuel 24, the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. See, here's the picture. Christian generosity demands sacrifice. It doesn't wait. It gives out of poverty. And it gives proportionally. Not equal amounts, but equal levels of sacrifice. Let's move on, verses 5 to 7. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, Paul's building an argument. First, Christian generosity gives out of poverty. Second, it gives proportionately the same level of sacrifice. But then thirdly, Christian generosity also convicts. Did you hear that in the passage? Now, we've been preaching some uncomfortable sermons over the last couple of weeks, and you keep coming back, right? 
But this sermon today should be as comfortable as any sermon on sexuality. This sermon today on, on sacrificial generosity should be as uncomfortable as any sermon on abortion or life issues. If this one doesn't make you squirm as much, then maybe you're not hearing what the Apostle's truly saying. Because when Paul talks about sacrificial generosity in the church, he's cutting to the heart of idolatry in the modern Western world. He's slicing right to your pocketbook, right to your investment portfolio. And in Northeast Burlington, those two things are very close to the heart. I think preaching on these matters hits close to home because it challenges those of us who call ourselves Christians but still demand to live our lives according to our rights. It's the worldly narrative. You have rights. But Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he has to do what? He has to deny himself. He's got to take up his cross. He's got to die. This passage on sacrificial generosity hits close to home because this same heart that many of us have that's not willing to give up my right to self-identify and to choose sexual behavior. This same heart that I often have that is not willing to give up my right to escape the natural consequences of actions. That's my right. I don't want to give it up. Today, it's exposing the heart that says, I have the right to do what I want with my money. Verse 5. Not the Macedonians. Paul holds them out as exemplar and he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, this is an overarching theme in 2 Corinthians that the progression for Christian holiness, the process of sanctification, growth in Christ, is about continually surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. Finding new ways to give him the right to tell you what to do. Because the world tells you that you have rights. But every Christian knows that you actually have a Lord. And that Lord gets to tell you what to do. Verses 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your, our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul's telling the Corinthian church that generosity is itself an act of grace. Have you ever thought of it that way? When you as a Christian man or woman 
give sacrificially and generously, it is an act of grace. It's a charis. It's, it's that same word that the scriptures use for God's orientation and self-giving to you. We're going to get to that in a moment. The point that Paul's making here in these verses is this, that God's grace comes to you, Christian man or woman, on its way to others. Excel in it. Think of your life as a fountain or as a river, not as a stagnant pond, right? Fountains and rivers, things flow through them onto other places. Ponds where they just pour in and hold become stagnant and rotten and stinky and useless. You're a Christian man or woman today. God is calling you to sacrificial generosity so that you might be a conduit of God's grace to others. That's the whole point. Excel in that, Paul says. Verses 8 to 11. All right, so now you've, you've heard all this, and I know what you're thinking. You're bracing yourself. You're saying, Artie, I know I want to become more generous, but I feel it coming. I feel the ask. I know at any moment now, we're going to pass the plate, and Artie's going to say, now it's time to give. Well, we are, but that's not the point. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you right now, you might be thinking, well, how then can I become more generous? Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Here's the point. Christian man or woman, you do not become more generous by working on generosity. You become more generous by returning to the cross. See, Paul frames all Christian giving and generosity within this greater giving and generosity of our God in Christ on the cross. See, your, your problem isn't that you are not generous with your resources. That's not the problem. That's the indicator. That shows you the deeper problem. If you look at yourself this morning and you say, I'm not generous, I'm not sacrificial in my generosity, that's not the problem. It's the indicator that you have forgotten how costly your salvation truly is. You've forgotten the cross. Verse 9 is one of the most poignant pictures of the gospel in the entire Bible. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. Now, now, if this picture that we are building from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is true, that Christian generosity gives, that it gives proportionally at the same level of sacrifice, 
Then you look at it and you say, well, what is my example? And the answer is that God is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself in Jesus on the cross. Jesus, who emptied himself, as we're told in Philippians 2. He didn't cling to his riches. He didn't cling to his title or to his authority. But he made himself poor, taking the form of a slave, being obedient to the point of death on a cross. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. He emptied himself of his heavenly riches, taking on our poverty. Paul says, so that we in return would be elevated from the slum of sin and hell and death to take on the riches that are his. You know, St. George's, this is a truth that we celebrate every Christmas. That the Son of God became a Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. It's the same theme that we saw back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, in light of the gospel of Jesus... Finish what you started with this generous gift. That's verses 10 to 11. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. What a telling picture. You know, doing and desiring are sort of chicken or the egg sometimes. When they're rightly ordered, your actions follow your desires. But friend, if you're sitting here this morning... And you say, well, I just don't have the desire yet to be sacrificially generous. Start with doing and the desire will catch up. Paul is saying that Christian men and women give in response to the cross. That's where generosity is rooted. We sing this song, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord, to thee. You know that song? And then the verse says, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. God, in Jesus, gave so radically and so extremely that he traded places with us on the cross. And that's what it means to truly identify with someone, to trade places with them to empty yourself, to give everything up so that they might be enriched. It's costly to you. It's self-sacrificial generosity that elevates another person. It, if, if Jesus on the cross is our example of how we ought to be generous, then it means that as Christians, we should give until it hurts. We should give until it feels like death and feels like a cross. We give 
so that others might have. You know, that's how our church works. So many people come here every Sunday and the gospel preached, the gospel in sacraments, the gospel in, in fellowship and in community has radically changed their life and given them hope for eternity. And so in response, people give so that others might have that same life-changing encounter with God and be saved. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not feeling overly generous. Friend, go back to the cross. Behold the generosity of God toward you. Or, or maybe you'd say, I see generosity popping up in my own life and in the lives of others. Well, anytime you see generosity, let it remind you of Jesus. Okay, I, want, I want to conclude with verses 12 to 15. Say, well, okay, R.D., um, how do I make sure that I don't give too much? Man, that's a great question to ask, right? Not how much should I give, but I don't, I just, I don't want to give too much, right? So Paul has just given us the ultimate example of grace and giving genero- generously. He points us to Jesus. But now in verses 12 to 15, he turns our attention to a lesser example that guides our sacrificial generosity, the example of Moses. Maybe you missed it. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, Paul is writing to a biblically literate audience, and he's reminding them of Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. But let me read to you this passage from Exodus so you can get a sense of what Paul's telling them. This is the account of Israel in the wilderness, right? Before they've come into the promised land, after they've been delivered out of Egypt. And in Exodus 16, it says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. They never did. (laughs) Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Paul's saying that sacrificial generosity for the Christian person should look like and be shaped by, in the greatest sense, Jesus on the cross, and in a lesser sense, Moses and the manna in the wilderness. 
See, Christian friend, in the same way that God provided manna for daily sustenance to his people in the wilderness, you can be sacrificially generous because God will provide for you. That's what Exodus 16 teaches us. You might look at your life and say, sure, sure, God provides, but ultimately I get up at six in the morning and I work hard and I'm a self-made man or woman. Think about that one more closely. Even if that's true, where did you get the capacity to do the things that you do? Where did you get the opportunity? Everything in your life is grace and from God. He provides for his children. And that new song that we sang this morning, I just erect me. It took this truth from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says, don't be anxious. And, and he says, look at the lilies of the valley. He said, they don't toil, they don't sow, and yet not even Solomon was arrayed in such splendor. God looks after his people. So you can be sacrificially generous. That's what manna teaches us. I think in the second place, when we look to the manna in the wilderness, we gain practical instruction on how to live in a sacrificially generous way with our money. In verse 16, the Lord commanded the Israelites in specific amounts, take an omer. I have no idea how much an omer is, but it was a particular amount. And that means that we as Christian men and women should be measured and intentional about our generosity. Well, one of the ways you can do that is a simple principle of 10, 10, 80. Have you ever heard of that? The first 10% of all the money that you make goes to the Lord. The next 10% goes to savings, and then you live off the other 80. I'm not saying that that's biblical wisdom. It's just one model that you might want to consider about how to get practical and specific about sacrificial generosity. The third thing that the manna teaches us is that hoarding God's gift doesn't help and often hinders. Those guys that hoarded it, they didn't end up with more. They just ended up with a house and a cupboard full of worms and maggots. Paul's telling the Corinthians that sacrificial generosity reminds you that everything that you have is from God. And so it gives you a big, generous, thankful, open heart. Verses 16 to 24, the only point here that Paul's making is that there are honorable men put in position of caring for Christian church resources, okay? Titus, he says, doesn't need any instruction. The second person in verse 18, he's a brother who's praised by all. The third person in verse 22, he's a brother who has often proved in many ways that he's zealous. Verse 23, Paul's saying, all three of these men who are put in charge of the church finances are an honor to Christ. Paul's conclusion here in this chapter is to say that um, if a church comes together in Christian community around sacrificial, generous giving, then that demands the best character in church leadership. 
He's saying that the only way that you as a Christian can feel free to be generous and sacrificial with your resources is if you can trust that they're being stewarded well. And Paul says in Corinth, those three guys are trustworthy. And friends, I thank God for the leadership that we have in this church. Everyone in our executive council could fall on this list with Titus and the other two. You know, there are in Canada CRA regulations that try to safeguard these things. They talk about percentages that charities have to put towards particular matters and reporting. But we all know that at the end of the day, that stuff could be fudged. In the church, we have something better than CRA regulations. We have godly character. And because there's godly character, you and I can sacrificially give generously without worry of being fleeced. That's Paul's point. Friends, um, being more generous will give you a bigger heart and a bigger life. It'll give you a life that's shaped by the bigness of God's love for you in Jesus. It'll give you a life that goes beyond mere parochialism, like just looking after yourself and, and those in your... It, it'll give you a heart that's for others. Excel in that grace. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts with this move towards sacrificial generosity. Where our hearts are small and stingy, I pray that you would lead us back to the cross, where we would see the immense price that you paid for us in Christ. Who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that we, by his poverty, might be made rich. God, would you make this so? I pray that our hearts, our lives, and this church would be marked by generosity in response to the gospel. Use us to bless others. We pray in your name. Amen.